Welcome to the fourth episode in the Cancer in the Developing World podcast series. By 2020, there are expected to be 16 million new cases of cancer every year, 70% of which will occur in the world's poorest countries. This podcast series examines Oxford University's efforts to support the improvement of cancer care in some of these countries. Today, we're talking to Professor Tim Eden about the topic of childhood cancer in low and middle income countries. Tim, you've recently retired uh, in your post as the uh, Professor of Teenage and Young Adult Cancer at the University of Manchester, is that right? That is true. I, I've, by uh, profession really, a paediatric paediatrician with an pedi- interest in paediatric haematology and oncology, and I worked for 35 years doing that, but uh, I trained in haematology and paediatrics in Edinburgh. I went to the States to work in California, and then I actually went to... Bristol for my first consultant post and then back to Edinburgh as consultant there and then I went to London in uh, 1991 as professor and then Manchester recruited me in 94 so I've been there for the last 14-15 years. But uh, I decided in 2005 that what we really needed was the same focus for teenagers as we had for paediatrics and uh, I took over that chair but I've just recently retired from that. I'm I'm now honorary and I continue to be the medical advisor to the Teenage Cancer Trust. But one of my big uh, passions and interests is clearly in spreading the word about the success that we've had with children with cancer in the Western world and in in those countries which have been able to afford to treat patients and now spreading it out around the world. Uh, I've been very privileged to travel extensively around the world and also to have been elected as president of the International Society of Paediatric Oncology, which has brought me in contact with many people from many different countries. And that has also led to me being invited to go to many countries. And particularly when I started to go to developing countries, uh, I recognised the real challenges and problems that they faced. How do survival rates of childhood cancer differ across the world? Well, of course, I've been also privileged to work through the era when we didn't expect children to survive from leukaemia and cancer. When I first was a medical student, indeed the professor of uh, paediatrics who taught me would not allow children with leukaemia to be treated in the 1960s because he said they would all die even though that was at a hospital very close to Great Ormond Street where they were successfully treating leukaemia patients. So I've been privileged to be in the, live in through the era and take part in the era where we moved from little expectation of survival to what we now have in a resource-rich country like Britain, 80% survival for patients. And yet, the rest of the world, when you travel to countries that are low-income countries, you realise that actually patients there with cancer, if they are indeed even diagnosed, very few of them receive any treatment and virtually none of them get cured. So the cure rate can be 5 to 10% in many really poor countries and 80% in the West. And that doesn't seem right to me. No, that's extraordinary. What are some of the countries that you've worked in? Clearly, I have had quite an interest in in Africa and uh, visited obviously in South Africa but in uh, Malawi but also in Sudan and uh, in Morocco. They're interesting because Morocco has achieved a huge amount uh, by sheer willpower of individuals recognizing the problem and moving it forward 
with parents working with doctors to actually make it all happen. In Sudan, very, very difficult problems uh, which face people when they see children with cancer, knowing whether they can treat them. We've just recently published a paper about the abandonment, which is a huge problem in, in developing countries because families can't afford to carry on with the treatment or they live a long way away and it's very disruptive to the to the family. In Malawi, because there's a very, very dedicated person there, uh, Elizabeth Molyneux has led the study and the work there. Because of that and support from uh, resource-rich countries, they've actually been able to improve survival dramatically. I've spent quite a bit of time over the years in India and Bangladesh and we have a twinning program with Bangladesh which uh, resulted from one of one of the doctors from there coming to Britain and, and training with me and doing his MPhil in Edinburgh with me and then go back there and to see the changes that they've brought which I'll talk about more when we talk about how we developed that is really quite remarkable over the last 20 years what's happened in Bangladesh. What was it that prompted you to become interested in working on childhood cancer outside the UK? It's quite a dilemma because in my, my career, my medical responsibilities have been trying to help children in this country. And as we've developed better and better treatments and better support and we've had development of um, dedicated centres, we're very privileged to be, have the money to provide the drugs and in the NHS to provide health care and support and medicines that children need in order to have a chance of cure. When you go abroad and see that they have nothing, you kind of have, I suppose, a degree of guilt. You say, well, how can we help? What can we do? And the, the first thing that motivated me was to go to countries like was happening in Bangladesh or in, in African countries where you actually went and saw that children were not only not being offered a chance to cure, but they had no palliation, no supportive medicine. So they would be in pain and they weren't given pain medication. And I'll give a good anecdote. I was asked by the British Council in the 80s to go to Burma. And they sent over somebody via the British Council scheme to come and train with us in Edinburgh for eight or nine months and a very lovely lady came to work with us and was very bright very very keen to learn as much as she could and when I went back to Burma when I got there all the Burmese doctors including her say well you can't do anything for us because we have no drugs uh, we can't treat patients so the whole of it seemed very wasted so I went around and up in Mandalay I went to a clinic and somebody came in, a family, with a packet of vincristin. Now this is a drug that needs to be left in the fridge. And the child had, clinically, was very obvious, had what we call stage four neuroblastoma, advanced stage disease, which we couldn't cure in Britain at that time. And they asked me to cure their child, and they, all they had, and they'd spent the whole of their money on one packet of vincristin which was useless because it hadn't been refrigerated and it was also black market drug that had come over the border from Thailand where they'd bought it. Who knows what was in it? 
how do you deal with that? And I suppose I've felt guilty ever since. See what I can do and, and how you can help to overcome some of those difficulties and share with them. That very unit in Burma is now curing at least half the patients with leukemia because there were young people there who decided they were going to do something and they have put a huge effort into it and transformed the unit and transformed the lives of a lot of kids from hopelessness to the chance of cure. The cure isn't the same as here, but it's better than it was. How do they manage to transform things? Well, I think we you have to look at the challenges that face uh, families. First of all, the biggest obstacle to cure is clearly poverty, and that's mm. individual families, sort of local regional poverty, because there isn't anything for people to do or earn money from, and then national poverty. And all of those produce reasons why medicines can't be provided, there isn't a health service provision, that there aren't trained people who would recognise the diseases and, and, and do something about them. The drugs are not available, or if they are available, they're very intermittent supply. So the first thing you have to do is to see whether you can make a difference to that. And that inevitably needs some philanthropy, money from outside. Not to tell people what to do, but if people locally say, we would like to do this, can you provide money which will enable them to buy drugs at reasonable cost, make them available, but at the same time also make sure that there are doctors and nurses who understand what those drugs are and how they should be handled. So you actually need to combine those things all together. And that can be done. And in all the countries where this has been done, improvement begins to appear. First of all, though, of course, you have to be sure that you've got to deal with the underlying problems in the society as well. And there's overwhelming other priorities in many countries. Malnutrition and terrible infections, malaria, HIV, uh, tuberculosis. As soon as those things are tackled and begin to be controlled, and, and Africa's a very good example of that, where a tremendous effort by the Gates Foundation and you know Bill Clinton's uh, fund and so on have all worked together to try to overcome those things. And as soon as you control those, up comes cancer, as it did in Britain. You know, 50, 60 years ago, cancer was not predominant in children because children were dying of other things. But once you cure those infections, up comes cancer. And they're seeing that in, clearly in many of the developing countries, including in Africa, once you control the infections and malnutrition. So you were talking about twinning programs earlier. Is that a way that international support can be used to sort of help support the improvement of cancer services in developing countries? I mentioned that I'd been elected to be the president of the International Society of Paediatric Cancer. And that has always subscribed to two things. One is that when you're going to have children treated for cancer, that they should be treated by a team of, of experts in a special centre and the only way you can develop those centres is by training people and retaining those people. So you want to train them up and then make sure they stay. And the only way you can do that really is by helping from outside. And 
we've very much promoted the concept of having twinning programs. And that uh, philosophy came from certain places like the St. Jude Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, who pioneered those. The St. Jude, of course, is the patron saint of lost causes. And they were very brave people, some of the earliest pioneers who started to be able to cure childhood leukemia were working there. A man called Don Pinkle and his team, and wonderful, adventurous people who took some risks but produced wonderful outcomes. And I think that that message, which I learned very much when I worked in the States, was you don't see it as obstacles, really. You see them as challenges to be overcome. And that's what St. Jude did. And they've got a wonderful uh, arrangements whereby they develop twinning programs where they say to somebody who asks them from a poor country, country with limited resources, we'd like some help. And the St. Jude say, well, we're not just going to give you money. We're not going to tell you what to do. But if you really want to do, you have to try and organize yourself. You have to decide what you want to do. You have to put a, a request to us and we'll help you to achieve it. And what they do is invest, but it works out pretty well that the investment from St. Jude in any, any unit is probably the cost of treating one patient in America for a year. And that money will treat many scores of patients. So it's all to do with relativity. And built on that model, St. Jude was the probably the first model to do that. And then uh, some colleagues from Italy in Milan and Monza developed a similar twinning programs with Latin America. And then a number of other organizations have done the same. And there's a wonderful group called the GFAOP, which is a link between Paris, France, and the Francophone countries in Africa. And they've developed a really wonderful, rich, joint program. And they've used the expertise in France, the technology in France, which they've transferred to some of the countries. And what's really exciting there is that, as I said, like in Morocco and the north of Africa, who've made great advances, they've still got challenges and still got way to go. But those countries are now helping the next tier down through Africa. And what we're hoping, I think, is that for us who are principally from Anglophone countries, that we're starting in the Anglophone countries and trying to move up <laughs> to meet in the middle somewhere. And I think that that uh, is a wonderful model. You also work for the World Child Cancer Charity. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you've been doing with them? Well, WCC actually was the brainchild of some of the parents of children uh, with cancer who had either survived or who had died. And there is a big international confederation of childhood cancer parents organization called ICIPO. Mm. And they had the idea that they should form this World Child Cancer, originally called it a foundation, to actually help uh, develop twinning programs and to support around the world. And they have about 70 to 80 different uh, countries are involved in their organization. And CEOP, was invited on when I was president to join that. The CEOP has obviously got members from even more countries where there aren't parents organizations, but, but Ikipo formed that trust. And the idea was to raise money to provide sustainability funding in places where there was the possibility of twinning. 
So basically, they took the twinning concept, resource-rich with resource-limited countries, and centers where there was some development, where they would then provide some funding, a bit like the St. Jude model, to provide sustainability for what was started. And that's just part of a complex of organizations that have developed in recent times. A very generous large donation from the uh, Sanofi Aventis Humanitarian Fund, not the actual company but the Humanitarian Fund, working with the UICC, which is the International Union for Cancer Control, bringing into it St. Jude and CIOP and ICIPO and the GFAOP that I've mentioned and the IARC, which is the cancer registration part of the WHO and one or two other, uh, the um, INCTR, which is the International Network for Cancer uh, Treatment and Research, and brought us all together to fund some projects, to steer them, to mentor them. And these were short-term projects, originally aimed two or three years of funding for specific aims, raising awareness, building satellite units, um, helping the parents' organisations to develop, maybe making drugs available, or in Morocco actually uh, working out how you could use opiates safely, something I'll come back to. But all of these projects, and in fact that funding has gone on, and now there are have been 34 projects in 22, 23 countries which is really rather nice. So there's lots of different bodies doing it, but there are lots of needs. And they're not directly twinning programs, although some of those programs then are being provided with sustainability by World Child Cancer. But you have to remember this survival, that about 80% of children with cancer in the world die. And most of those children do not even get any supportive or palliative care. And that's the reason why all of these things exist. There's almost a bottomless pit of need. And we're just trying to kind of <laughs> help. But there's more to be done. It sounds like you've got a lot of professional organisations who specialise in childhood yeah. cancer who are working towards supporting these international efforts and try and remove that disparity of survival rates across the world. But what I wonder is, why hasn't this issue of childhood cancer really captured the world's imagination, like other diseases like malaria or um, TB or polio, for example? I think partly because of what we talked about before, which is overwhelming other problems. Poverty, malnutrition, infections still. And also, one sadly has to say that a vast amount of money worldwide, and particularly in countries that can ill afford it, is spent on armaments and fighting wars and conflict, let alone the sort of natural disasters that we see. So you can just see in, in, in some of the poorest countries, it's like Bangladesh, you know, every year half the country gets flooded because it's below sea level. That just wipes out any sort of effort to actually improve the country. Although they are very resilient people, they seem to bounce back and they are now curing patients with childhood cancer. But I think it's because of these other overwhelming things. But like in Bangladesh, when I first went there, I thought, what are we doing? You know, we, we need other priorities. We need hygiene. We need better sanitation. We need water supply. But as those things develop, then clearly up comes cancer. Seems terrible, doesn't it, that once you start to get rid of a lot of problems, then something else appears. Mm -hmm. But that's how cancer appeared in Britain. 
uh, and in America and, and Europe. So that particularly the, the communist type here, uh, which is childhood leukemia, didn't emerge as a, a peak of the problem until about 50 years ago. And that's an important thing to remember. It, that relates to the sort of improvement in hygiene and improvement in urbanization that actually unmasks that. If you go to Africa, you see very little of that peak. I guess it'll come. And that's an interesting thing that, of course, in sub-Saharan Africa, where we're particularly interested in, in, in uh, what Afrox is doing, well, clearly the peak disease is a thing called Burkitt's lymphoma, or Burkitt lymphoma, I should say, uh, where it is very curable with relatively a f cheap therapy. And there are a lot of efforts being put in by some very good workers uh, from South Africa, Peter Hessling, with people like Elizabeth Molyneux that I mentioned in Malawi, and in, with some wonderful people in, in the Cameroon, who are actually using fairly basic therapy and improving survival for these patients. And so what looks like a very small amount of money can go a long way to cure people. And I think one of the things that we try to convince people who are beginning to develop children's cancer is to look and see who is curable. If you get a patient with stage 4 neuroblastoma, like the little mm -hmm. child I mentioned in Burma, you're not going to cure, but you will use resources. The question really is what you should do in those circumstances. Now, before everybody says, oh, you mustn't tell us whether to treat or not, my very first patient that I ever dealt with when I was a paediatrician and as paediatric registrar, the first patient I ever saw with cancer had stage 4 neuroblastoma, early 1970s. And when we sat down and talked to the father, because there was no mother there, which was unusual, it was a single father, um, he opted not to treat. And I supported him through that as, as, as a junior doctor, but I was there all the time. And we supported them and, and we made a decision. And that is only just over 30 years ago where we couldn't cure. So, mm -hmm. you know, we were faced with the same dilemmas. So we've been there and aware of those problems. And I think one of the difficulties that we always face now is as we look at how we're treating patients now, is, is trying to transfer that to other countries who haven't got the resources. And there is a moral dilemma there. It's what you can do usefully or not. But luckily, Burkitt's lymphoma can be treated quite cheaply and cured. And also kidney tumours, the, the so-called Wilms tumour, which can in many cases be cured by limited chemotherapy and surgery. And so you want to treat those patients who can be cured and once you start curing patients then the public become aware of it and the whole thing just mushrooms and develops. Mm. I think one of the major challenges is to actually in many countries particularly in Africa is for people to be aware of what the signs and symptoms mean seeking help and then receiving some useful help and also not being negative about it. You know, in, in um, Swahili, I think I'm right in saying this, that the, the name for cancer is never healing sore. 
So if you believe it'll never heal, why treat? Hence abandonment. And so I think you have to overcome that by making people realise that sometimes the sore can be healed. And how do you manage to change opinions in that way? Well, I think some of the projects that have been done, like the um, uh, Sanofi um, humanitarian-funded projects, do raise awareness. You actually get publicity, you go out into villages, you use the healthcare workers to spread the word about symptoms and signs. In in Africa, there's a group of um, people who've been using what they call the Saint-Louisian signs. Saint-Louisian was uh, actually a monk back, I can't remember how, in history, maybe 16th century or whatever, some time ago anyway, and he, uh, they've just used that term and they've put down some very common signs and symptoms and when you're faced with hundreds of patients coming through uh, and sometimes thousands of patients coming through a clinic you need to be able to say who's ill who's not ill and certain signs and symptoms suggest you've got cancer or leukemia and therefore you can do something about it or not as the case may be but you want to pick out the patients that you can treat so you make that available to healthcare workers out in the community. You have publicity, you get into the local newspapers, you put banners, you, in some countries where they have television in, in Bangladesh, they have a march every year on International Child Cancer Day where they march down the street with big banners, cancer can be cured and that sort of thing. So depending on each country, you raise awareness. Our mission in our twinning programs is always that you want to Increase the number of people who are diagnosed. Increase the number of people who are treated. Increase the number who are actually cured. And decrease the abandonment rate. Because you don't want people starting treatment and then stopping. And that includes actually communicating effectively with them. And making sure they realise why the treatment needs to go on. There's been an interesting study recently in a resource limited country where there was a selective difference between the richer people and how they were treated and how they were talked to and how they were communicated compared with the poor people who couldn't afford their therapy and just had sort of state aid for their therapy and people didn't forgot to tell them that actually you could be cured if only you stayed with the treatment and we're paying for the treatments it wasn't always with the the fact of money it was just that they weren't told that it was important and I think that's an important message as well you have to communicate. Are there differences in the type of childhood cancers you see in poorer countries compared to western countries? I think I alluded to that a little bit it does vary if you look at the say in Britain um, for childhood cancer 0 to 16 then a third of the patients have leukemia most of them the acute lymphoblastic type which is very treatable and curable now um, about one in five have brain tumors about 11 12 percent have lymphoma um, in the glands are either hodgkin lymphoma or the non-hodgkin type and about 10 percent have uh, what we call sarcomas either in bone or soft tissue if you go to africa and i've mentioned sub-saharan africa you don't see much of many of those, but you see this lymphoma, which is the Burkitt lymphoma, it's related to the glandular fever virus, but you also have to have malnutrition, 
you often have to have um, chronic malaria associated with it. And there are other factors as well that influence the way the body handles that virus. And the virus sits in the cells and makes them multiply up and become malignant. So that's a curable cancer, but you don't see too much of the other leukemia until you start to get you know, better. So in South Africa, then they do see ALL because their community has become a little bit richer, they still have problems, but it's actually, it, it emerges. So we've talked a lot about how treatments can be improved through improving access to drugs and through training healthcare workers. Is there work that can be done towards prevention as well? I think it's, that's a little difficult for children. There's a lot you can do in childhood to prevent adult cancer. Very exciting project in Gambia where they vaccinated uh, children um, in a sort of trial there for hepatitis B and that is one of the major causes of liver cancer which is a huge killer in Africa because of the high prevalence of hepatitis. We know that uh, cervical cancer is the principal cancer causing death in women in Africa and of course um, that is related to HPV, uh, a virus called HPV and that actually uh, can be vaccinated against if only you can produce the drugs at affordable levels uh, and vaccinate uh, women. So there are clearly some areas of prevention. The biggest prevention in Africa is to stop people from starting smoking. Now that sounds a bit tortuous that come on, but smoking is not a natural activity amongst most people in Africa. But um, tobacco companies offload their cheap tobacco and cheap cigarettes in Africa. If you actually didn't allow them to, or you price them out of the markets, you would stop all the cancer risks that we know and see in Britain, for example, due to cigarette smoking, whether it be lung cancer, mouth cancer, lip cancer, you know, stomach cancer or whatever. So, so I think you can do quite a lot of prevention of adult cancer. The childhood cancers are not particularly uh, open to prevention at the moment. So I think that many of the what we call embryonal tumours, like the kidney tumour I mentioned, uh, we don't fully understand what causes them, although rearrangement of the genes in the tumour uh, are seen, but they're probably not within the, the, the rest of the body. You mentioned earlier that you work for AFROX. Now, AFROX is an organisation that was set up by Oxford University to improve <coughs> cancer care in Africa. What have you been doing with AFROX? Well, obviously, my expertise is in the area of, area of um, children. I was very delighted to accept the kind invitation by, from David Kerr and the, uh, the, the, the board of uh, AFROX to join them at the conference in 2007. And uh, I've known David for quite a long time, so he immediately actually uh, willed me in to actually chair a session. And one of the interesting ones was, was touching on what we talked about, which is uh, cancer prevention and uh, early diagnosis and vaccination programs. So that's, that's why I became knowledgeable about adult type cancer. But at the same time, it was realized at that meeting where we produced a declaration for the WHO that actually children's cancer was worth concentrating on because so many of the tumors that they see in sub-Saharan Africa can be cured at affordable costs. And this was important. And what sort of projects are you involved with, with AFROX? Well, now with AFROX, we're focusing very much on Ghana, uh, and in particular with the uh, 
development of the cancer plan in Ghana, which includes children. And we're obviously seeking funds from other charities to be channeled through Afrox to actually try to improve the facilities, the resources, the staffing, and consistent drug supply, etc. in Ghana. There's a paediatric oncologist in Accra, in the capital, who trained in Britain and with whom we've been working. And in fact, she's been a very uh, keen and enthusiastic member of the International Society of Paediatric Oncology. And so in 2010, she is actually running the CEOP Africa meeting and bringing people from other countries in Africa. And we hope very much that uh, we will be able to sort of provide some support be able to provide some lecturers and so on. And I learned yesterday that the council of CEOP, and that means that the board, the president and the president-elect and the scientific committee chairman and the secretary and so on, along with all the continental presidents of CEOP, and that's North and South America, Europe, Africa, Asia and Oceania, are all coming to that meeting, funded by CEOP, to provide lecturing at no cost to the meeting. So that sounds good. That's fantastic. And what are you hoping to achieve from that meeting? I think what we hope to do uh, is to try to actually get enough funding to be able to, to help people come with scholarships mm. from countries. Uh, I mean, I don't know whether... I know you've travelled a bit in, in, uh, in Africa for, in, your, in your work, but you know it's quite difficult to travel between countries. Mm. And sometimes the last meeting we had, which was in Morocco, somebody from... Uh, sort of West Africa had to fly to London to come back to North Africa so there's not internal flights and so on so this is crazy which in increases the costs really but actually trying to get um, people to come so when we've met in the north of, of uh, Africa we've tended to attract people from the north and when in the south from the south and obviously now in Ghana we've got to try to uh, make sure bring we get the two bring together. together yeah, yeah. exactly so if people want to help, what, what could they do? Well, of course, the thing that we'd really like are lots of people to, to give us lots of dosh yeah. uh, to actually to be donors. Yeah. And actually, you don't need lots of map people with, who are millionaires. That would be wonderful. I mean, if you get to Clinton or a Gates to provide you with big money. But also what you need is... is uh, loyal followers, people who will actually give something on a consistent way. I'll give you two examples of that. Um, in the Malawi project, there is a link between Newcastle in the UK and Malawi, and that's related very much to a couple of doctors having personal experience of Africa and having lived there. And they set up a charity to help Malawi. And for the very nature of what they were doing, they were asked to go to a couple of churches to talk about what it, what they were doing. And one church said, well, what do you want? And they said, well, we need to have some money for nurses. Again, nursing staff who could be trained and retained in the unit so they didn't go off and use their expertise somewhere else. And they said, okay, well, how much does it cost? And it, you'd be surprised how little it costs. You know, 120, 130 pound. Um, will pay a nurse in Malawi for a year. And, of course, in one service, they took the money as the collection in the service to pay for that. So then they actually went to other churches the same. So they're paying for three nurses or four nurses. And it doesn't take much money. It goes a long way. 
it's absolutely terrible that it only costs that much to, to fund a nurse. But actually, that's what you need. is And you need a mixture. If you've got a big donor, fantastic. But if you've got small donors, they can still contribute a lot. And um, it's the same if you pay actually uh, £20 a month for uh, 12 months. You've bought a, a nurse or a social, social worker or a counsellor or somebody to support the families. And, you know, a lot of us can afford that sort of money to pay in charity. Uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a good way. You And the, what, what you get out of it is being a donor, well, you feel a bit good. Yeah? And if you feel a bit good, that's wonderful. So you're happy and somebody's having a chance to live. Thank you very much, Tim. And if you want to find out more information about World Child Cancer, you can go to their website at www.worldccf.org. And to find out more information about AFROX, you can visit www.afrox.org. Thank you.